Welcome to For The Win, the podcast that goes behind the scenes of the campaigns, strategies and people that changed Australia forever. I'm your host, Emily Mulligan. Today, I'm speaking to a reluctant activist, Dr. Alex Wodak, whose work has helped stop an HIV AIDS epidemic in Australia. He's now the head of the Australian Drug Law Reform Foundation. I thought we'd talk about the King's Cross injecting room, the struggle to get it established and its tremendous success. But instead, the take-home message for me was that every cent put into harm reduction measures of any kind pays huge dividends. But the war on drugs remains a singular obsession and a tremendous policy failure. From a campaigning point of view, trying to apply reason and influence on the war on drugs is a losing game. Dr. Wodak is also very active in campaigns to defend human rights and dignity of drug users. Last year, he teamed up with my colleagues at GetUp to win a tremendous victory against a policy that would have seen people on New Start tested for drugs, a punitive measure devoid of any scientific backing. So this is how a doctor from St Vincent's, who studied the unpopular field of drugs and alcohol, has managed to shape some of the very rare, sensible responses to drug and alcohol problems, such as medically supervised injecting centres, methadone programs and needle exchanges, that have been replicated across the world. Welcome to For the Win today. I'm with uh, Dr. Alex Wodak, who's spent his career uh, making sure that people don't die unnecessarily with drug and alcohol um, issues and problems. And um, he's been a public health crusader, and I think we're all grateful for his work, even if we don't know it. So, Dr. Wodak, thank you very much for having me today. My pleasure. Um, so what I want to know is in your utopia where we don't have all these preconceptions around what drugs and alcohol and they're being bad and people who use them are bad people or whatever, um, what does it look like for you? Well, uh, what I'm aiming for is to see that in terms of all psychoactive substances, those that are currently illegal as well as those that have been legal all along, uh, is to minimise the number of deaths, disease, crime, corruption, violence, and also the stigma. Uh, that's that's what I'm aiming for. We'll never get to zero. Uh, we'll always have to work hard to try and get lower, but that's what I'm aiming for, minimise deaths, disease, crime, corruption, violence, and stigma. And what do you think that would look like? Is it more like governments kind of making sure drugs aren't... Do well, I get a pina colada at my desk at 4pm and nobody judges me? <laughs> what is it? Well, it's, it's a matter of doing two things. It's a matter of uh, basing policy on evidence and respect for human rights. You do those two things and you'll end up um, where I suggested. Great example of um, your work, of smart public health policy, potentially uncharacteristic coming out of Australia is uh, that we got um, one of the world's first, I think, safe injecting facilities. No, we we were slow off the mark. The first one was opened in Australia in May 2001, and the first official medically supervised injecting centre was opened in Bern, the capital of Switzerland, in 1986. Mm -hmm. So that was a full quarter century before us. We were the first in the English-speaking world um, and then Vancouver two years later in Canada. Um, 
And we're still, I think, the only two English-speaking countries in the world. Uh, now we've got two. But Canada's gone on to something like 20 medically supervised injecting centres. Um, and they, they realise in, in the midst of an overdose epidemic, they realise they, uh, they need to have more than just the one, uh, the one or two that they had in Vancouver, British Columbia. So, I mean, early 90s, or all through the 90s, I guess, in um, King's Cross, where our medically supervised injecting room is, uh, pretty dire area, I guess. A lot of deaths, uh, a lot of overdoses, a lot of crime. Um, what do you remember from that area at the time? Yes, well, uh, heroin overdose deaths in Australia were going through the roof in the 1990s in Australia. Um, we had a grand total of six heroin overdose deaths in 1964. Mm-hmm. And that was 11 years after we had first prohibited heroin in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had 1,116 heroin overdose deaths in 1997. Sorry, 1999. So the overdose death rate in Australia um, increased 55 times between 1964 and 1997, and that's uh, adjusting for the increase in the size of the population. So we we had this explosion of heroin overdose deaths, and few people realised that New South Wales, which accounts for a third of the Australian population, roughly, uh, accounts for about half the heroin overdose deaths in the country, and 20% of those deaths in New South Wales occur within two kilometres of King's Cross. Wow. So one in ten heroin overdose deaths occur within the uh, 12 or 20 square kilometres of King's Cross. So that's why getting a medically supervised injecting centre was so critical to uh, doing something about the overdose death rate in Australia in the 1990s. As it was, the, um, the, the market for heroin changed radically at the around about the time of the new century and the heroin supply uh, drastically uh, shrank um, for reasons at the, uh, at the time that was claimed that that was due to uh, more effective law enforcement. Mm-hmm. Uh, I said at the time that was Buncombe. Um, the only study that supported that was... Um, funded by drug law enforcement, um, Mm -hmm. which may or may not have been (coughs) significant, excuse me, but uh, what happened in Australia was (coughs) that the heroin supply shrank because opium cultivation in Myanmar uh, declined from uh, in the late 1990s. But politicians can't resist a tough-on-crime narrative. But the the then Prime Minister, John Howard... um, uh, was adamant that it was Australia's tough-on-drugs that had uh, caused this, and people were silly enough to believe it. And um, sad to say, some researchers um, said that as well. And I guess this was a really radical idea to have nurses on hand and um, you know helping people deliver drugs safely. You must have been called a fair few names <laughs> in the time of trying to get the room up. Yes, look, I started uh, being public about um, the failure of global drug prohibition 
1987, and I wasn't the first to do that, but there, there weren't many of us. And uh, you're right, I was thylified at the time, um, and a lot of my colleagues also thought I'd taken leave of my senses. But uh, these days, it's, uh, it's very different. It's the people who say the war on drugs is worth continuing to fight and is winnable who are now marginalised and ridiculed. And in that time as well, in the 90s, in Sydney, there was also HIV AIDS, um, uh, ex- you know, just decimating a community, also here in inner city Sydney, um, and the needle programs were, were important with that response as well. Like, were those the drugs and the uh, HIV AIDS getting conflated and used politically too? Yes, I think that we can't overstate the fact that uh, the success of harm reduction approaches to drugs uh, were they, they were so incredibly successful, uh, more successful than I had ever hoped they would be, um, just as well. Uh, and I think that was one of the turning points for uh, global drug prohibition, that people saw how little was achieved by all the billions of dollars that were put into customs, police, courts and prisons, and yet small change put into harm reduction uh, prevented this country from getting a generalised epidemic of HIV, and a lot of people saw that and understood how important that that it was that we did a lot more harm reduction and didn't uh, focus quite so much on drug law enforcement. So that was, that was a very important lesson that came out of the HIV epidemic. But it was really educating drug users, especially through peer-based mechanisms, mm-hmm. uh, using explicit language of the street rather than highfalutin university language, mm-hmm. and, um, and drug users talking to other drug users through the network of uh, drug user organisations that we set up, government-funded, that was one important element. The needle syringe program was incredibly important. Mm-hmm. And a government-commissioned study in 2009 estimated that in the first decade of this century in Australia, uh, the needle syringe program had prevented uh, 33,000 HIV infections, 100,000 hepatitis C infections, uh, saved between 2.4 and 7.7 billion dollars, that's billion with a B, at a cost of around 200 million for those 10 years, 2000 to 2009, Uh, so that for every dollar that was spent on the needle syringe program, four dollars was saved on healthcare costs alone, and 27 dollars in total was saved through the community. So... um, Really, the evidence was was there right before us, mm-hmm. and um, the logic of of that finding was that we really should have been putting in all those years, uh, uh, you know, for decades. We should have been putting much more money into harm reduction. So the medically supervised injecting centres also save more money than they cost, um, and yet. Um, the Melbourne Medically Supervised Injecting Centre, it took 20 years of 
private and public advocacy for that to be materialised, uh, to get the Andrews government in 2017 to approve that. We face, still face the same uphill battle with pool testing. Um, the methadone program is still uh, ridiculously expensive for the low-income group of people who use it. Um, and so, therefore, people wait till the last minute before they finally enter methadone treatment and the minute they think they can, they jump off it because it's so expensive for them. Mm. You know, it's... Is it accessing the program or they have to pay to... Well, they have to pay the, the pharmacy um, uh, and also they... Uh, this is complicated but because it's sort of different in different states and territories, but it's 10 to 20 percent of a very low income. They're a low income group. And uh, every time we try and get harm reduction, it's years and years of uh, very extensive effort, to be frank, for very little in return. And yet, uh, people with a different view who still advocate for supply control, law enforcement measures, just have to blink and they'll get 10 drug courts or mm. whatever it is, where the evidence, frankly, is nowhere near as good and the returns just aren't there in comparison with the returns we get from harm reduction. So as it becomes more obvious that harm reduction is a sensible way to go, it's interesting that there's increasing murkiness in Australia's drug laws. Well, there's a much greater, um, I think, uh, attention to reducing death, disease, crime, corruption, violence, stigma across all psychoactive drugs because the, the boundary between what's a legal drug and what's an illegal drug is slowly getting more and more blurred. Mm. So who would have thought that, that uh, having nicotine liquid for vaping in your possession at home in your freezer it could risk you uh, a $45,000 fine or two years in prison. Well, it can. I mean, it's absolute madness mm. uh, to punish people for quitting smoking the wrong way. Yeah, crazy. So, Alex, how did you go from um, being a doctor with these um, ideas that, uh, you know, showed the benefits of public good to being a kind of rebel <laughs> to you know you had to convince a lot of levels of government you had to help convince a lot of levels of government that an injective room was a smart idea i know it got knocked back by um federal senate committees and you know it took i think 10 years of just being a trial before it was actually cemented in how did you did you have to learn a bunch of new skills to try and convince politicians of these? Uh, well, look, firstly, I didn't do this on my own. None of the things I've done, been involved in, have I ever acted on my own. It's always a group of people. And for various reasons, I was usually the one that could do the media uh, and get away with it because, <laughs> frankly, being a male was helpful. Um, and I'm not proud of that, but, you know, uh, that it was there and I would have been silly not to do that. Um, and also being a specialist physician 
working at a Catholic hospital, a prestigious mm. Catholic hospital, all of that helped, and other people in more junior positions and being women, say, um, couldn't have, would have been, uh, had their head knocked off mm. if they'd done exactly what I did. So it wasn't just me, but I did a lot of the media. And so that's why I'm credited with things that I really did as part of a group. So why did I do it? Well, look, as a medical student at Melbourne St Vincent's, I... Uh, grew up in a hospital where we had a lot of people with alcohol and drug problems. Mm. And the the nuns, the uh, religious sisters of charity who owned that hospital, uh, were very far-sighted way back in the 1960s, realising that this was a group that needed more attention and compassion and um, effective policy. And so they started investing in this area in the 1960s, and uh, I was influenced very much by one of my teachers as a medical student and then uh, working in London uh, in the ni- 1970s, um, I uh, wanted to do some research and I did some research on biological aspects of alcohol affecting the liver. Mm-hmm. And while I was doing that work uh, in the early 1980s, I, I was really hit by the magnitude of the public health problem that alcohol and drugs were. And so uh, New South Wales at that time was setting up a network of hospital-based alcohol and drug units and they were had great difficulty finding any doctors who would be interested and I heard about that and applied and got the job at St Vincent's. And then when I arrived in Australia with my family in 1982, the AIDS epidemic was just exploding and it was exploding in the neighbourhood around Sydney St Vincent's. Mm -hmm. Uh, That was the national epicentre. I heard about um, 3,000 to 4,000 men who had sex with men in the Kings Cross neighbourhood who'd been infected already with HIV by the early 1980s over a 12, 18 month period. And I realised that if 3,000, 4,000 men who have sex with men had HIV, some of those would also be people who injected drugs. Mm -hmm. And if they injected drugs, they'd be sharing needles and syringes with men and women who were not gay. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that group of men and women would have unprotected sex in all likelihood with people who didn't use drugs. And so we would have this cascade of HIV infections going from gay men through um, the heterosexual uh, people who injected drugs right out to the general community who were not gay and didn't inject drugs. And once the genie was out of the bottle, it was going to be awfully difficult to put that back. Um, And there was no, um, no end close to being treatment. Um, no, that tr- effective treatment happened in 1996. We got closer and closer to it, but the revolution was 1996, and so we were talking. I'm talking about an era where there was, where people died agonising deaths, where there was no treatment, and I saw some of those people, unfortunately, in the early 1980s at St Vincent's Hospital, and you didn't need to see too many of those to know that this was an epidemic that really had to be stopped young people dying of 
HIV in the early days of the epidemic was really shocking. And fortunately, we were... Um, our politicians really did us proud in that period. We had... Um, uh, I don't know whether the word still exists. We call it bipartisan or multi-partisan mm-hmm. approaches. People... Um, Peter Bohm, Shadow Health Minister, Neil Blewett, the Health Minister, had a celebrated cup of tea, one a professor of political science, the other a future professor of community medicine, and they understood the politics and the public health of the HIV epidemic. And it was that cup of tea that they shared uh, where this, the Australian approach Evolved, and then they both took that to their political masters, Bob Hawke and John Howard, and managed to convince their political masters to take the risks. Because the option then was exclusion, um, that is, uh, uh, quarantining people with HIV, or a compassionate evidence-based approach. And fortunately, um, both sides of politics stuck stood by the compassionate uh, approach, an inclusive approach. So I went to many, many meetings where we would have police and health department officials and um, all that sort of thing, of course. But we also had men who had sex with men, women who sold sex, uh, people who injected drugs, researchers, clinicians, all sitting around a table and saying, we, one thing we will, all of us around this table will not tolerate is an uncontrolled epidemic of HIV infection. It's a serious threat, health, social, economic threat to Australia. How do we get out of this? And they sat around and worked it out and the politicians backed them. Um, And we have to get back to that kind of way of operating. Um, it was very effective and and it saved this community in Australia uh, countless lives and billions and billions of dollars. Um, uh, no one, I think, realised at the time how effective it was going to be, but it was incredibly effective. So that's really what changed me. And then one day I was sitting in my office in 1987 th- saying, OK... This is what's happened. Now needle syringe programs have been approved in New South Wales and they're being considered one by one by each state and territory and then over the next two years they were adopted nationwide. I said to myself, why why was I told to stop the HIV epidemic among people who inject drugs in Australia but you can't can't have a needle syringe program? Mm. When the Netherlands had one, Margaret Thatcher had approved one in England. Um, why couldn't we have one in Australia? And then I realised um, that what was stopping us in Australia was our entrenched commitment to drug prohibition. Mm-hmm. That was the problem. So I asked myself a series of questions. What was our drug policy really? Mm-hmm. Why did we adopt it? When did we adopt it? Um, did it work? Were there better alternatives? Uh, what had we to do as a community to try and adopt the alternative, more effective approaches? So I uh, 
it was a very difficult time for me emotionally mm. in 1987 because a lot of people, as you said, had um, called me all sorts of things <laughs> and uh, I've developed a thicker skin than I had in those days and it got to me a lot. So I took three months sabbatical leave, fortunate to be able to do that, and I travelled to Western Europe and North America looking at uh, how those, how Switzerland, Netherlands, England, Canada, United States uh, responded to the threat of HIV infection among people who inject drugs. And um, a couple of things really impressed me on that trip. One was um, I was lucky enough to... Uh, observe a an evening in a shooting gallery in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, New York. So I saw four uh, people, two men, two women, all Hispanic, sitting around a table in almost pitch darkness, shooting speedballs of heroin and cocaine for the whole night. And uh, it was a scene of such utter degradation such restless, reckless risk-taking. Uh, and I talked to one of the men uh, through an interpreter and, and suddenly it dawned on me that what they were doing in one sense was reckless, in another sense was a sensible thing to do when you're poor, uh, stigmatised, discriminated against, um, when... Uh, you live in squalor, you're always hungry, you'll never get a decent job, your kids are destined to have the same life, your grandkids are destined to have the same life. Um, why not have three hours of chemical oblivion in paradise? Um, it makes a lot of sense, even though you know it's going to shorten your life. And it dawned on me that evening, and that really... That's why we're doing this interview now, um, all these years later. And another meeting that really impressed me at that time was in the State Department um, in Washington, D.C. I'd met the Deputy Director of the State Department of the United States as the lead government agency for drug policy outside the United States. And I'd met the deputy director of that section in Sydney and he'd invited me to see him in Washington, D.C. So I went to see him. And I said to him, I'm having increasing doubts about drug prohibition. Can you tell me, can you give me some evidence that it really works? And he said to me, um, in the last 12 months, the U.S. dollar has depreciated against all the major uh, countries that we trade with, which means that the, the the work of the statement departments become more expensive. So we had to readjust our budget and every section of the State Department took a cut, except for two, Embassy Security and this section, the Bureau of International Narcotic Matters. And I was flabbergasted because mm -hmm. what he was really saying to me was, who cares whether it works yeah. Uh, in reality, it works bureaucratically, and if it works bureaucratically, I'll support it. That's it what was, was non-negotiable. That was non-negotiable. So that was really that made a huge. Those two events really turned me around, and I came back to Australia realizing that I would have to spend decades of my life 
trying to advocate for drug law reform. And you're quite right, it was against a lot of the strong traditions of medicine. And no doubt a lot of my colleagues um, disapproved of me talking to the media so much um, rather than doing the conventional things that doctors are supposed to do. But you, you, you do what you can and you use whatever weapons are at your disposal uh, if you think an issue is important enough. I mean, let's talk about some of the successes. I mean, you talked earlier about literally stopping an epidemic, but we won't even stop there. The um, medically supervised injecting centres, by almost every metric, are a pretty huge success. Way fewer deaths, fewer ambulance call-outs, no increases in drug offences. And not only that, but (coughs) the majority of... Um, people use, that use them then go on to accept a referral to a mental health service or to, to other um, services that could, could help them more holistically. Um, so, that, I mean, it's a pretty extraordinary success. It is a pretty extraordinary success, but uh, I'd, I'd ask you to find a harm reduction initiative that mm. hasn't been successful. Mm. Um, Car safety belts, airbags, motorcycle helmets, bicycle helmets, condom promotion, uh, nail syringe programs, methadone programs, drug consumption rooms. Um, these are all extravagantly successful mm. and uh, cause very little harm and are dirt cheap to do. Mm. Um, whereas customs, police, courts and prisons, uh, it's a real challenge to find any benefits and the unintended negative consequences are often very severe and are blindingly obvious. Let's talk about another campaign that you worked on more recently um, with my colleagues at GetUp. The government put forward the proposal that um, people weren't going to get their welfare payments unless they passed a drug test. Uh, would you like to discuss the merits of such a program? <laughs> Well, let me pay tribute to GetUp for coordinating that campaign. Without GetUp coordinating that campaign, we wouldn't have got the result we did where the, that uh, r- ridiculous um, proposition, fortunately, was defeated. And the government tried very, very hard in the Senate many, many times to get that approved and it was, it was nonsense from the word go. Uh, trials like this had been done, as you know, in other countries, uh, had been abandoned or had been unsuccessful, um, and uh, the government was warned by every expert they consulted that this was nonsense and shouldn't, we shouldn't be going down that route. Instead of trying to criminalise uh, people who use drugs... We, we should be we should recognize that that approach has been tried for half a century or more hasn't worked and we should be looking at ways of trying to integrate these people in the community not to exclude them Johan Hari the, the author put it very well when he said we've tried hating people who use drugs for decades and it hasn't worked it's time we started loving them and I it's a maybe a flowery way of saying it, but I think he's basically right. Mm. That's really what we need to do. So we're getting a bit biblical here, but what really is the best way of dealing with the problems of some of the most marginalised people in society? Uh, 
the lesson of the HIV epidemic is bring those people around a table. Listen to them. Don't just talk at them and yell at them. Don't just beat them over the head. Um, uh, but include them and uh, treat them with respect. Um, they are Australian citizens who use drugs. They're entitled to have their human rights respected and to be treated as equals. Um, so, so I think there's a lot more that comes out of that. I agree. Um... I think it demonstrates another aspect that runs through all of this whole area, and that is that you have to ask yourself, why has it been so difficult to change drug policy when it's manifestly failed, when it's clearly caused serious unintended negative consequences left, right and centre, uh, and yet changing government policy has been so difficult? Why has that been the case? And I think there's only one conclusion you can come to, and that is that uh, bad policies are good politics. Mm. And frankly, um, that it's still like that to an extent, but increasingly around the world we're seeing governments more and more interested in trying to make good policies good politics and uh, in, the, in the drugs area. And so we're seeing Uruguay tax and regulate recreational cannabis. Um, Canada will do that in the middle of next month, in six weeks. Um, the United States, New York, has become the 10th state to decide to regulate and tax recreational cannabis. Um, and we're seeing uh, Portugal's huge success in 2001, and I've visited Portugal a few times. Uh, it's very popular. The, the outcomes of that of their drug law reform in 2001 were very beneficial. They uh, basically legalised drug. I mean, they, or they, I don't know, they, they have one of the most sweeping okay. progressive drug policies. If you are caught in Portugal, let's, let's not use a label, let's mm. say what they actually do. You get caught in Portugal today with a quantity of heroin, cocaine, amphetamine, LSD, cannabis. So... Each one is identified for what it is, and then it's weighed. And if it's under a certain weight, and there are different thresholds for different kinds of drugs, then if it's below uh, all of the uh, drug categories are below the threshold level, you get uh, referred to the Commission for Drug Dissuasion. You go before a panel of uh, three people uh, and... The panel says, uh, how are you getting on with your partner? Are you looking after your children? Are you looking after your ageing parents? Um, are you keeping up with the payments for your car? Are you keeping up with the rent of your flat? Um, and then they check on these things. And if you're taking heroin, cocaine, amphetamine, LSD and cannabis on a regular basis, but your life, your you're still a responsible Portuguese citizen carrying out your responsibilities, they say, well, we've made an appointment for you in six or 12 months at a, um, at a drug treatment clinic um, at 10 o'clock on um, six months' time, uh, and if, that, if you're still stable in all these areas, that'll be the end of it. 
or they say, well, your partner wants to walk out on you, your children are neglected, you haven't seen your parents for a year, um, you're six months behind in your car payments, you're, you're behind in your, your flat, uh, your employer wants to sack you, um, we've made an appointment for you for two o'clock this afternoon and you better attend, otherwise we'll do X, Y, Z to you. Oh, okay. So that's the way it works, whether you want to call it legalisation or decriminalisation. I don't think those labels help us, but that's what they do. Mm. And as a result of that policy introduced on July the 1st, 2001, overdose deaths fell, crime fell, HIV infection fell, what they call problematic drug use fell. By all indications, very successful policy. The community polls 70%, 80% positive. Governments changed at elections several times since 2001 Portugal. Every incoming government left the policy alone. Global financial crisis 2008-9 hit Portugal very hard, but Portugal cut government expenditure left, right and centre, left this area alone. Mm. So it's worked very well. Have other countries adopted it? Well, Ecuador did, and Norway has just announced that they're following uh, this policy. But the the problem has been uh, um, very few countries have taken it up, but then very few countries ever take up harm reduction and drug law reform quickly. Mm. You know, we had this long battle for medically supervised, you know, every harm reduction measure to do with drugs that I mentioned before has taken years and years and years of hard advocacy. It's never won overnight. Look, look at pill testing. Who could believe that people who go to dance parties who take drugs that aren't haven't been tested are safer than people who... Uh, mm. who take drugs that have been tested and you're told, yes, this is MDMA and your dose is 323 milligrams in that pill. You shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't take it. Um, so that's the nature of the beast. We're always pushing a heavy stone up a steep hill. That's right. Well, thank you so much uh, for My your pleasure. time today and for your work. Um, thank you. Thank you. Alex, it's thank pretty, you for getting up. Pretty, pretty profound impact on the country. So well, thank you for that. <laughs>